Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 28, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, UCI Department of Pediatrics and Genetics Professor Jay Gargas will have much to tell us about proposed legislation in Congress. It's known as House Resolution 1313. It's known as Preserving Employee Wellness Programs Act with vast implications for privacy. This interview will come complete with marching orders, I'm hoping, between Dr. J and me. Over the second portion of the show is Eliza Rubenstein, director of Orange County Women's Course, who'll be presenting a stirring musical program about the courage and the nostalgia of refugees and immigrants on April 1st and 2nd, that's Saturday, Sunday, at the end of the week. The concert's theme will be Rockin' the Boat. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Just when you are wondering who's more distracted, the president or the Dramamine-seeking public, we now must grapple with more consequential policy moving through the congressional pipeline. House Resolution 1313, known as Preserving Employee Wellness Programs Act is the subject of this first interview for today. It has considerable implications for privacy, perfectly poised to take up the ethical and medical intricacies of this legislation is my guest, Dr. Jay Gargas, Professor of Human Genetics, Pediatrics, and Physiology and Biophysics. He directs the UCI Center for Autism Research and Translation, which might be referred to as CART later on. It's a group of 60 UCI faculty working toward the toward drug discovery in neurodevelopmental disorders within the center. He holds three patents on novel genetic disease diagnostics and has received major awards from the American Heart Association and the National Headache Foundation. He earned his undergraduate work at Case Western University and his MD-PhD in human genetics from Yale University School of Medicine. He completed residency in pediatrics and a fellowship in medical genetics also at Yale and is a certified medical geneticist. Prior to joining UC Irvine School of Medicine, he had appointments at Emory and Yale. His research is funded by National Institutes of Health, Autism Speaks, Doris Duke Foundation, and the Thompson Family Foundation. And he's been an invited speaker at several national autism meetings and has been organizer and chair of two large early international society symposia, one of biophysicists and one of geneticists, focusing on cell signaling defects in autism. He additionally serves on the scientific advisory board of the Channelopathy Foundation, headquartered in Zurich, Switzerland, and several national review groups. He comes to us today from up the street from this studio. He's a get whom I've been trying to book on this show for several years now. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jay Gargas. 
Hi, Claudia. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk to your uh, audience about this very important topic. It's very important. Well, I'm going to just take up with our listeners uh, from the top a little background, a little legislative background. When California enacted laws protecting patients' genetics information amidst their health care, and that was in the 2000s, the 2000 aughts. Then in 2008, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which is known as GINA for short, but we'll, we'll use the long and shorthand throughout. It was passed in the U.S. Congress. It, was, it prohibited employers, nationwide that is, from requesting, requiring, or purchasing genetic information. Now, Ron Paul was the sole vote against this legislation in 2008. That was 414-41 against that then-President George W. Bush signed into law. And then uh, after that, well, I think it's important legislative history to know that when it was going through the Senate, Olympia Snow, Ted Kennedy, Mike Enzi, and Christopher Dodd supported it. It was approved in the Senate in a 95-0 vote. The five senators not voting included the presidential candidates at the time, uh, John McCain, uh, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. It had been subject to a hold. That means no action takes place on it. No vote is uh, it's not put on, onto the floor for vote was by Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma. So last May, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission amended various GINA provisions concerning workplace wellness. And it's still, again, that one that it, it allows, it requires that employee wellness programs are voluntary. And we're, we'll, we can get into that a little bit. And that employers cannot deny health care coverage for non-participation. And three, it requires that it, that it take adverse employment actions against the or coerce employees who do not participate in wellness programs. And that's going to be kind of important, too. So now the latest bill, House Resolution 1313, passed out of committee on March 8th of this month along party lines. It was supported by 22 Republicans and opposed by 17 Democrats. So now it's packaged with the following title, and we can take that apart all the way we want, Preserving employee wellness programs act with the particular language in the summary that requires our attention and i quote from the legislation collection of information about a disease or disorder of a family member as part of a workplace wellness program is not unlawful acquisition of genetic information about another family member with all this that's going on with so many high stakes and distractions to sort out so this is an important time to look closely at this law. So let's talk about what, Dr. Gargas, what could possibly go wrong in the workplace with insurance, with college admissions, any entity? What could happen with this information out there? Well, I think it's really uh, immediately clear what would happen. I mean, in fact, it's actually way worse than the situation was just prior to 2008. And, and again, People need to realize that this is happening during the window of what we call, you know, the post-genomic era. We have the whole human genome sequence, and that means it's quite straightforward to look at genetic information and make some very strong predictions. It's also very easy to misuse this information. 
But I want to give some simple examples of what the situation sure. was just prior to 2008. And that's where we already had very robust capability to diagnose some high-risk cancer genes. And that's very, very important. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard about this. There have been a bunch of movie stars and so on who got involved in doing this kind of testing. And what we generally recommend with this kind of high-risk cancer gene testing is that the patient be closely monitored, much more closely monitored than they would be in a routine situation, so that the very earliest signs of the cancer can be treated and prevented from having, you know, devastating consequences. In, in many situations, there are also very specific surgical interventions. I mean, some of you probably have heard about the BRCA genes, the breast cancer uh, genes that have a very high potency, um, uh, significantly increasing uh, a woman's and even a man's risks for having breast and uterine cancer. Um, they, uh, ovarian cancers and things like this. I mean, the, the prophylaxis having uh, surgical removal of the organs that are at risk and therefore minimizing your risks going forward. But for a lot of these genes, it just requires careful monitoring, different kind of x-rays, different kind of blood tests and so on than, than someone would be exposed to. And people who would sign up for that would do it first paying out of pocket using really misidentifying themselves, keeping themselves out of their medical records for fear that somebody would find that result, which could be life-saving for that patient, uh, but could have uh, implications for them not wanting to be carried by an employer who would now maybe have to face the consequences of a very expensive uh, cancer down the road, that, uh, you know, other kinds of diseases like Huntington's chorea, which is a very devastating neurodegenerative yes. disease, some of the early onset Alzheimer's disease loci, we have a couple of them that are very, very potent and highly predictive of those disorders, that, that employers would be reluctant to take those on. Certainly insurance companies would be reluctant to take those on. So, so all of these things are issues that people kept out of their medical records, kept away from their health care providers because of fear of what would happen in society, society at large, and all of the kind of financial implications that it could have for their jobs and for their ability to get insurance. And then it cascades down because it's not only insurance for them and jobs for them, but it has repercussions for their children, for their extended family, all these kind of issues that are just enormous, and which was why the American Society for Human Genetics, which is, again, the, the largest society representing medical genetic specialties in the United States, and I would really refer your listeners to their web page to see that. I mean, the, our society was very strong in campaigning for GINA for years, okay. trying to get that passed because of the importance of being able to keep genetic information confidential. And, and again, what one really needs to recognize nowadays is that in this post-genomic era. There is no better identifier of a unique individual than their DNA sequence, so that if you have somebody's full DNA sequence, you can pretend 
that you're unmasking it. But uh-huh. ultimately, if someone delves deeply, and you have to have a great deal of experience to know how to do this, that person is uniquely identifiable. We have three billion base pairs that we inherit from mom, three billion from dad. They're all different. So with those six billion base pairs, I mean, forget about the kind of digits it takes to make your password secure. Right. With wow. six billion, you are very uniquely identified. So, so the, the point is that we really need to have strong legislation to protect this. And now what's happened is that with us having had for many years, now almost a decade, having had the reassurances that there was this clear protection of genetic information, a number of people have obtained appropriately medical genetic tests. They've been involved in research projects. They've been involved in all kinds of, 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 of studies knowing that their genetic information was secure and protected and meant only in the medical sense that it was meant to be used and that it would never be something accessible. And so now to suddenly unmask all of this information is a devastating blow to their right to the rights of everyone in the country. I mean, we know this is not looking at some esoteric, tiny little group of people, because we know that everybody carries, every human being carries multiple, rare, devastating genetic mutations. I mean, we, we know that happens. The people have done statistics back in the old days where you could sort of, old, I mean, like more than 10 years ago, where, where you could figure out that people carry something between five and seven lethal mutations. Now, they carry them because we have two complete sets of the genome. We have, as I said, one set from mom, one right. set from dad. So if you have a devastating mutation on one gene copy, usually the other gene copy is good to protect you. We call those recessive diseases, and a huge spate of the diseases are, in fact, mm-hmm. recessive, so that you get that kind of protection. So we can silently carry a lot of mutations that would be not only serious but lethal. And so, so everybody, we know everybody is a carrier of something. We just don't have everybody annotated yet. We don't have the, the, the list of what those problems are. So, so we should be really, I mean, just horrified that somebody would try to undo this important protection. So, I mean, I can go on and on. Oh, this is I important. Want to go for back those, to you, for Claudia, those of, so you can ask the questions oh, that's that your fine. listeners this are is, most interested This in. is very essential. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Jay Gargas. He's a UCI geneticist, and he is talking about House Resolution 1313, known as Preserving Employee Wellness Programs Act. And I note that in the provisions, there's no mention of the genetic counseling component, which is a very large part of what you do in your research, what people that are engaging their specialists in their getting medical care. Genetic counseling is an important professional component of the patient being treated. So it's sort of like these people are being asked for data and there's nothing, there's no protection even in them handling the the information. 
sure. And that, and, and that's, that's something that is becoming, I mean, it used to be that ordering a genetic test was such an esoteric and complicated procedure that really no one but a geneticist would do that. Now, you know, gene tests, you could check off a box in a hospital order sheet and you can do it. Uh, that doesn't mean you'll do it right, and it doesn't mean you'll do your patient a service. So we've always felt it is absolutely critical that genetic counseling be an essential component of revealing genetic information. And, and, and this is genetic disease meaningful information. I don't mean things like 23andMe, which I think are just fine because the kind of risks and things that they give you are really useless. You, you get more information from a good family history than you can get from those kinds oh, wow. of superficial direct-to-consumer genetic tests. But with deep genetic sequencing where you do get direct uh, disease implications, you need to know before the test is done the kind of results that may come back, and you certainly need to know at the time that the information is given. So this isn't the kind of thing that the secretary calls you up on the phone and says, by the way, you have a, uh, you know, <laughs> a severe disease-causing mutation, right. and, uh, you know, we'll just put that into your chart. And, you know, you need, it takes a good long period of time to explain all of the implications. And, again, one of the important things that we get into with a lot of the – where we're actually reading the DNA sequence, the direct genome sequencing studies, is that – Few enough human beings have been sequenced to date that we commonly encounter what are called variants of unknown significance, the oh, U.S. Yeah. And what that means is the patient needs to know going into the test that, again, this is part of the worry of what people will do with this information in an employer situation, right. is that they will get something which will say, um, you know, you've got a change in this gene and we've never seen it before. And we don't know what that means. And I will just tell you that if you do a whole genome sequence on any one of us, you will find hundreds of changes, not just changes from the textbook copy of the genes, but you will find hundreds that have never been seen before in a human being. So, so, so the problem is, now that's in a whole genome. We more typically do an exome, and an exome is a shortcut name of saying it's the 1%, so that's still an awful lot of base pairs, it's the 1% of the genome that we really know how to read very carefully, and it's the part that codes for proteins. So we have about 25,000 such genes, and so I said it's about 1%, 1 to 2% at the most of the genome is this kind of information that we really know how to read. The other 99% of the genome, we can call that the dark matter of the genome, but it's becoming annotated, but it's involved in all kind of regulation, and we certainly know diseases can be made in that other part of the, the genome, but we're not really good at calling out those hits yet. But, but even within the exome, and we do this now routinely, we're just certainly doing it in the autism center, we're doing it in all kinds of other studies, where a patient who has a very complicated presentation, we read all of their genes, wow. and whenever you do that, you find lots and lots of variants and many, many, many that are of unknown significance. So what you can do is set the stage for making a person be very anxious. They'll say, oh, geez, I have this thing, nobody knows what it is, and I'm really worried that, that, you know, well, an insurance company, you know, what the heck, why take the, why take the chance? That person has a variant, uh, you know, we're not going to deal with them. 
Well, so, the so second, yeah, we're the second have lots get... of bad calls right. on not really understanding genetic information. So the second guessing is the first hazard. The uh, that well, and we're dealing. I mean, with the, such a blunt instrument here, of, like you said, so much information, so much second guessing. Well, they shouldn't have it at all. They shouldn't no, no. be able to guess at all. Exactly. Yeah. Right. 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 And the and as we all know, and as it's uh, in the analysis since March eighth, in various media, is the problem is that once insurance companies collect data, that some of that that data invariably will go to a third party. So. We don't. We wouldn't know where it ended up. We wouldn't know how they're using it, and it's it's really trailing the patient like no, nothing else. It's a real trolling. Uh, absolutely, and and I will just say there are a lot of well, <laughs> I mean, well, I call them disreputable. I, I mean, what I would say is people will offer, for instance, something as insane as a genetic screen for autism. Now, I find that morally reprehensible. Really? In something like autism, we have about 800 genes that have an impact on that disorder's phenotype, about 800. And, and so what that means is that individuals have to inherit whole complex blocks of mutations. We know autism is highly heritable, but it takes combinations of genes in the environment. And the notion that someone would sequence some of those genes, some of which change your risk, from being 1.00, a normal baseline average risk, to 1.02. I mean, it's an indistinguishable risk. Right. And so if somebody sends off a crazy test like that and is willing to interpret it as showing some increased risks, you know, what in the heck is... I mean, you know, you can get all kinds of horrible repercussions where people are completely misusing um, information. Not, not, not to mention that, as I said, I keep going back to it. Please. This is horrible to be doing even if they knew what they were doing with the information. So, so, so I, you know, it just is, is to undo a promise that has been made is frightening. It's really frightening, and I just hope that someone has the common sense in Congress to recognize that this is something they have no business doing. You know, you you commented on the name of the bill, and it is an insane name in the bill. And you know, I, I can I can try to explain why they might try to disguise the bill that way, because we certainly know that there are some individuals who are susceptible particularly susceptible to certain kinds of environmental I mean this is the this is, I'm sure this is the argument they used again I've not followed the legislative process but I mean they could pretend that what they're going to do is have this information so they can prevent vulnerable individuals from being exposed to something and that's nonsense because the approach has always been you need to make the environmental impact safe for the most vulnerable individuals, not, not to target something for that rare individual who will scoot through yeah. this deadly risk by screening their genetic background for, for them not being susceptible. So, so it really is a completely backwards way to be looking at how this is something for 
personal wellness. Do, do you understand wh- how they tried to sell this as an aspect of wellness, Claudia? Well, no, I no, I think it's it's always about the packaging, just the way uh, initiatives are placed on a public referendum, the the statewide for a statewide approval. They can just name it anything they want. They can name it anything they want. And the the soothing part really, I'm sure, has worked uh, very well. Well, I did a little bit of looking around. Virginia Fox is the chair of this committee that it passed out of. And I did a little looking at some of her the, of the financial support that's not brought up to date. It's only the last cycle, 2015-2016. And among her donors is SAS Analytics. There's a lot of uh, equity funds and things like that that support her last campaign, uh, previous campaign. But, uh, for, but SAS Analytics is a data mining kind of enterprise. And I'm just wondering if we shouldn't be very aware that the data mining that can result, the opportunities from House Resolution 1313 is the motivation here for scooping it up. And that, I mean, we're watching data mining happening increasingly and less regulation on our uh, all the Internet and our financial activity. But this seems to be like the genomic version of that. Sure. I mean, when, once you plug in uh, your electronic medical record, which, again, we essentially all now have hospitals are lickety split converting everything off of paper to everything up in the cloud right and you start putting the genomes in together with that you'll have a very robust data mining uh, mine i mean that yes and all kinds of analytics are emerging around how to use that kind of information it's it's going to be very powerful if it's kept protected and used for things like how to recognize disease early, how to recognize potential therapeutics, how to recognize risk factors. But you don't want that being done by insurance companies. You want that being done by physicians and scientists who are trying to help the individuals, not trying to maximize the bottom line. Well, I I just want to mention as a a point of interest here is in the New York Times op-ed Sunday section, this last week, Dr. Louise Aronson, put, she put out her entire genetic profile for everyone to view, I mean, if this, uh, uh, to make the point of how delicate House Resolution 1313 is. And, I mean, she's made it so public, that's how dire the situation is, that she's willing to present herself there. That, that's really quite unusual. So, Dr. Gargas, what do you see might be the effect of the just the proposed legislation, as well as uh, the effect of maybe this being uh, the, uh, in going into some kind of rulemaking on your genetic research. Well, I mean, I forget. I mean, yeah, it'll be completely stifling to the research because obviously a critical part of what we're trying to do involves obtaining genomic sequence and involves obtaining genomic sequence in these kind of neurodevelopmental disorders that obviously have always been one of the more private parts of psychiatric information has always been kept out of the core of medical record information and this would be the kind of things people would not want being included so it would be bad for research but it's going to be but that's sort of the tip of the iceberg right i think we have to worry much more about people who are doing this to take care of themselves and i don't know are the are we going to go back and start shredding medical documents? Are we going to start? I just don't know what the ethical response to such an unconscionable act 
uh, would be. Because, again, you know, it was with all the confidence yes. that we could tell people that, you know, this is only for managing your disease that we're doing this. Now, you know, some big movie star can go on TV and say, you know, I had my breasts and ovaries removed because of this genetic risk. I mean, she's going to be able to take care of they ensuring have the, Right, herself, they have control over but, that, yeah. But others can't do that. And again, with all the turmoil in insurance and, and the risks of having pre-existing condition issues come up, I mean, somebody is going to call uh, a, genetic di- a, a genetic risk a diagnosis. And we've always been emphatic about the fact that that is not the case, that, that genes are a risk. They're not the disease. And again, this whole idea of how insurance companies would come to use genetic information as a pre-existing condition, wow, I mean, that would be just uh, horrific. Uh, I mean, I just can't even imagine how, how things will, will progress for, for, for what has come to be standard medical care. Dr. Gargas, to what extent, how many generations do you think could be folded into the hazards of this disclosure. <laughs> how how many you mean? How many generations going forward? The offspring. Well, I mean, how far do you think that the insurance companies, employers, oh. that all could? And, and I throw in admissions offices because I remember considering that with privacy projects, you know, in the late nineteen nineties, is even admissions office do things with material like this? Do second you mean guessing? College right, office? right. Whether it's a you know it's a, a good gamble on somebody if they think that the, that person's longevity might be reduced. I I've not heard of that kind of stuff, but I mean I, I can certainly believe it. I mean I you know I mean a dominant gene goes on forever. I mean we trace we trace Huntington's Korea back to you know the witches of Salem, right? Okay, so, wow. so I don't know how many generations that's been, but it you know that that gene goes on forever. So it can be for as long as somebody doesn't have the wisdom to change the law. Recessive genes are more complicated to follow, but we follow many of them, all of the hemophilia. We followed through many royal lineages right. in Europe for, for decades. So I have no idea. I mean, it would go, genes are forever. <laughs> so, yes. so, so, you know, I, I, it has uh, very long uh, uh, implications. So I've put in a word. I'm, uh, I'll, when I hear back, I can include it in a later broadcast. But I'm awaiting responses from our the Congresswoman Mimi Walters, who represents the district where this well, that campus would be is. Important. I want to hear from her. And I've also asked Dr. Howard Federoff, CEO of UC Irvine Health, asked his press person as well as his office what is their position on the legislation and their plan of action. So, Dr. Garst, you mentioned that people could be following what the American Society for Human Genetics, ASHG, I'll put the the link uh, for people to, to follow that on the podcast summary, but do you have any other ways you'd like listeners to follow up? I think, I mean, no. No, I think that's the. I think that that's the. Obviously, contacting anybody in Congress or anybody who you think is responsible in being able to do something about the legislation. I'm not sure that the people in Congress are responsible, but but maybe some of them are. So it might be our local congresswoman. Um, I would be excited to hear that she was supporting this, but really doubt it. 
but also there are some legislatures that are very responsible, and so you should get to them. Uh, you can write to the president. I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't have any good information, but I think that the American Society of Human Genetics is a very good source for getting unbiased information about what's happening with the legislature and being able to lay out in the perspective of caregivers what the risks are uh, to the population. Well, you know that we can close with this. This this is so reminiscent, Dr. Gargas, your your reaction to the hazards. It's when I interview climate scientists, they talk about their inability increasingly to to sleep at nights. I imagine something like this has a similar impact on on your well, deep thinking I, about this. Yeah, I, I really haven't come to the point of even believing that something as draconian as this could happen in America. I mean, this is kind of a gulag kind of issue. So it's, to me, unimaginable. So it, I would say it hasn't sunk in. If it ever happens, I would be horrified. Well, we're going to be witnessing some bizarre political theater with with more committees, starting with tomorrow the science uh, committee and Scott Pruitt's testimonies and all that kind of thing. So it's just sort of, I think we have to be vigilant about what proposals are making their way through the legislative process so that the draconian yep. measures that Dr. Gargas is talking about don't harm us. <laughs> yeah, so, I, and I, I, I would count on you to keep your finger on the pulse, Claudia. Well, I, I, yeah. I, well that's what we're going to do. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Jay Gargas, yep. from UCI, geneticist and bioscientist here at the Center for Autism and Neurodevelopment. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. My pleasure. Okay. Well, we'll be right back after a station break, and we're going to talk with Eliza Rubenstein, and she is the director of Choral and Vocal Activities at Orange Coast College and has a lovely program to be performed this Saturday and Sunday. Be right back. Symphony Number no. 1. Thanks for coming back to the show. My next guest is Eliza Rubenstein, and she is the Director of Choral and Vocal Activities at Orange Coast College and the Artistic Director of the International Prize-Winning Orange County Women's Chorus and the Long Beach Chorale and Chamber Orchestra. She's here to talk about a program full of intention entitled Rocking the Boat, somewhat I try to do at least twice a week <laughs> with my guests. Eliza Rubenstein completed her B.A. in choral conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music and her master's degree at UC Irvine. She serves on the board of California, let's see, ACDCDA, uh, that must be the um, uh, direction group, as the editor of the award-winning Cantante magazine, and she is a former animal shelter supervisor and the co-author of a book about adoption. Among her conference presentations was a seminar called Sit, Stay, Sing, What Choral Conductors Can Learn from Dog Trainers at 
a conference in uh, 2006. Courses under Eliza's direction have performed at Carnegie Hall, Chicago's Orchestra Hall, and the Sagerstrom Hall in Orange County, and she will make her Carnegie Hall conducting debut this June with a performance of Kirk Meckham's Songs of the Slave. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Eliza Rubenstein. Thank you so much for having me. And she comes to us today from Costa Mesa. So tell us, Eliza Rubenstein, what you're trying to do, what you're getting from your direction of this lovely Orange County Women's Course. The Orange County Women's Chorus has been around for almost 20 years now, and I have been so lucky to be their artistic director for most of that time. I'm going on about 18 years now myself, which is kind of amazing. Um, and our, our goal has been since the very beginning to make extraordinary music with extraordinary people and for extraordinary people. So we sing great music of all different eras and styles and genres, and, and often with some sort of a theme or a message. We are committed to producing a really high-quality artistic product, but also to reaching people and strengthening the bonds of community through music. And that's what we're doing, especially with our programs this year. So uh, this season's concert theme is Rocking the Boat, and there are a number of wonderful pieces that you'll be performing. Maybe you can talk about what they are, yeah. what's their selection. I'd be happy to. So our theme for this entire season has been home. All of our concerts have had something to do with home and family. Um, our, our December programs were on the theme of children. Our May performances are going to be about pets. That, as you mentioned in my bio, is something that's been very central to my identity yes. alongside music all of these years. Um, but this one is, this is in some ways sort of the most, the most um, compelling theme maybe of the bunch. It's all about music of and about and by refugees and immigrants and other people who are seeking something far away from the place that they maybe knew as home. Um, so the music on the program, I'll give you some examples of some of the things that we're singing. One of the, the biggest pieces that we'll be performing is by a composer who lives in Minnesota. Her name is Abby Bettinas, yes. and she's written a really amazing piece of music called From Behind the Caravan, Songs of Hafez, um, setting texts by the Persian mystic, mystic poet and writer Hafez about about the their um, the journey of mysticism and of seeking and of uh, you know traveling in search of something meaningful this is a beautiful beautiful piece we're singing it in farsi which is a new and interesting challenge for wow. us yeah and it's accompanied by cello and um, percussion and oud, which is a, a Middle Eastern stringed instrument. And it's just a fascinating piece of music, very challenging, but very, very invigorating. We'll also be singing a piece, by, in fact, by another woman who lives in Minnesota on a text by Anne Frank. Anne Frank, you know, sadly has had to be back in the news lately as our country has a dialogue about, about how we handle refugees from other countries. And um, this is a piece that we have sung before that has become very, very personal and, and beloved to the chorus. We'll be singing a movement from a work by a San Francisco area composer. His name is Henry Malacone, and um, he's written an entire mass called Misa de los Inmigrantes, Mass of the Immigrants, from which we'll be doing one movement. It's really, um, it's a really poignant piece of music. The, the text is partly in Spanish, and it's just the standard text of the Mass, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but it's preceded by a section of narration that's actually taken from a first-person account of a Mexican woman who's trying to cross the border 
and it's it's really it's really very very moving. Um, so those are some examples. We are our assistant conductor. Her name is Sarah Hughes. She'll be conducting a lovely, lovely little um, piece in French that was written in honor of um, the Syrian refugees who were entering France in the last few years. It's just a, a very sweet little sort of a secular blessing upon them for safe travels and protection. So those are some examples. And then one of the last really exciting things that I'll tell you about on this program is that one thing that we like to do is commission new works. We love to work with living composers and to introduce, to do our part to introduce new fantastic pieces into the women's chorus repertoire. And uh, we've been working this year with a woman named Joan Shimko. If you're a choral singer, you probably know her name. She's a very well-known composer and a really outstanding one. And she has written us a piece called Water Women, which is all about um, women being sort of thrown overboard, but Whoa. potentially also realizing that maybe the issue was that they were never in the boat, so to speak, to begin with, and they need to find new ways of traveling through the world. So oh. we're very excited about that. And Joan will actually be with us for the concerts to meet the audience and tell them a little bit about her work. I'm thinking of paddling metaphors in that. Too. Oh, then you need to come to the concert because the women in this poem have an even better idea. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm I'm planning on Sunday, actually. Excellent. So, We're excited about that. So, and 30 minutes before is going to be a, a Meet the Composer. Mm -hmm, that's that, right. That's before both the April 1st and April 2 meet, uh, performances? Yes, that's correct. And so you want to give us any of the particulars then on April 1st, where you'll be performing and when? Saturday, April 1st at 7 p.m. We'll be at St. Wilfred of York Episcopal Church. That's in Huntington Beach. And then on Sunday at 3 o'clock, we'll be at Newport Harbor Lutheran Church in Newport Beach. And these are, um, if you've never been to either place to hear music, I can assure you they are two of the most beautiful acoustics to hear choral singing in all of Orange County and plenty of free parking in both locations. Oh, so acoustics and probably uh, for those performing and those uh, those patrons that it's probably just a wonderful scale of audience proportion. We hope it'll be a great experience in every way. We want you to leave feeling like you heard something beautiful and and calming, but at the same time something provocative and interesting. For those of you who've just joined us, Eliza Rubenstein is my guest. She's the director of Choral and Vocal Activities at Orange Coast College and the Artistic Director of the International Prize-winning Orange County Women's Chorus and the Long Beach Chorale and Chamber Orchestra. She's talking about the program. The chorus will perform April 1 and 2 in Orange County. That's If you're listening to it live, it's at the end of this week. And this is Ask Leader. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We're on Twitter at KUCI-FM. It's Instagram, the same handle, Tumblr and Facebook. So let's, we've got the details of the patrons on this specific performance, but how can listeners contribute to and support Orange County Women's Chorus? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, we, um, Excuse me. We uh, first of all, uh, if you are a singer, if you are a woman who loves to sing and has some singing experience, and you think you might like to be part of this group, we would really be excited to meet you. Um, we hold auditions every August, and uh, are looking for women in all voice parts. 
um, at our website, ocwomenschorus.org, you can find complete information about how you might like to audition for this group. And I know the word audition is really scary to a lot of people, but it's a really it's a short and uh, completely non-threatening audition. And we encourage you to look into that if you're someone who enjoys singing. Um, and really, you know, the, the, the first and best way that we would love for you to support us is to come to a concert if you've never, if you've never heard us before. Um, we like to think that, that we are bringing something distinctive and important to the music lovers in our community, and we'd love to welcome you into that family if you're interested. And from there, you know, if you're, if you're inspired to become a donor and a supporter, uh, so much the better. Um, obviously, one of the other conversations we've been having in this country lately alongside that of, about refugees and immigrants is that about the arts. Um, we've seen just so many threats to public funding of the arts, and the, the sad reality, well, the, the reality is that if we value the arts in our communities, our support of them is going to have to begin at home. We're going to have to protect them um, even as we fight to have them protected at a, at a broader level. Has your course been the beneficiary of any NEA money? Not specifically, no, we but, have not. But it just it does shrink the pool of money, resources available, if that were to be discontinued. So everybody's chasing after even fewer dollars. That's so exactly right, and we just think that, that it sends a very troublesome message. There's, uh, you know, we, we, we believe very, very strongly that arts are not merely a luxury in society, but they are a necessity if we're going to have a society that we can that we can be proud of. So. Yeah, we are we are fighting that fight, and we hope that all your listeners are, too. Okay. Well, this is your opportunity for any other public service announcements on behalf of the group. I, I have no other questions other than, uh, you know, uh, if you only had, maybe there was one section of the chorus that you really want those auditions to beef up. I don't know. You know, the great news is I, I, I can't come up with one. We have a really nicely balanced group, but the, wow. also, the, the other great news is we don't have a limit on how many fantastic women we can have singing with us. So okay. if you are someone who enjoys singing and is good at it and enjoys the company of smart, funny, talented, dedicated women, um, we'd love to meet you. We'd really love to meet you. And I, I guess this is a little intimate aside, is that there was a formal member of the chorus whose memorial service was convened, I think it was about a year ago, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a, a dear member of the School of Social Sciences. That's right. And I remember it was sort of, a, it was your opportunity not to acknowledge to her she had, she was no longer living, but you could acknowledge to the members of the chorus and the ones that were remembering Carol, you could say, she used to sort of dismiss the quality of her voice, but she really had an awesome voice. And so and, I always will remember that. Oh, and she was time. an awesome person. You're talking about our wonderful second alto, Carolyn, who sang with this group for many, many years before, unfortunately, she, uh, she we lost her to cancer. But we were so privileged to know her and so privileged to get to sing for her and to her at that memorial service. I'm, I'm glad that you remember that. I won't forget it. It was so it was it was elegant and 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 bittersweet because yes. there was one person who didn't get to hear that but i imagine you had a chance to say that well eliza rubenstein i'm so happy to have you on thank you for your time today thank you and we're going to conclude here with a few announcements we're going to conclude would with sweet honey in the rock would you harbor me which is going to be a piece that's going to be played on the the performance so announcements Former guest and climate scientist Michael Mann will appear tomorrow at the Congressional 
full committee on science, space, and technology. He will be joined by a cherry-picked group of climate skeptics for testimony before Chairman Lamar Smith's committee. That's tomorrow from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And you can go to the website democrats.science.house.gov hearing climate science assumptions. And you can get a little background there. And you, that I'm sure stream it on C-SPAN. Then my friendly, benevolent reminder here is today you have three more days remaining to pull off a memorable, sound April Fool's prank. I stuck the dive last year and I'm sufficiently reinforced to keep it going this year. Good luck, listeners. Well, that was my wrap. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Would you harbor a Christian a heretic, convict, or spy? Would you harbor a runaway woman or child?